a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies, they're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there, and welcome to the show. I am so glad that you could join me today. If you can catch uh, both hours of the show, I think you'll find yourself uh, richly fed, but that's just one man's opinion. And it's the guy who's doing the show, so it's probably pretty self-serving. Maybe I'll just drop that and move ahead. No, I'm glad you're part of my audience. I know there are a lot of voices out there, a lot of different places you can go for information, things to make you go, hmm, is that really what the world is like today? So I am extremely thankful to have you as part of what I hope is a growing audience. I really think that there is interest in in understanding the world as it is, but even more than that, understanding those areas where you and I have influence. Because it seems like a lot of what we're up against is calculated to make us feel as though, no, 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 you have the power to do as you are told and not much more. Does it feel that way sometimes? Okay, well, I'm, I'm here to give you a very gentle yet firm kick in the seat of the pants to, to make sure that you understand not only can you understand, you are, you are able to think like an expert. You just got to learn how to trust yourself, and you have far more influence than you actually think you have, and that's a part of why I am here to help you discover what that influence is and then use it wisely wherever you might be at any given moment. Now, you're going to notice if you're, in, if you're a newer listener to the show, I don't spend a ton of times on, time on politics. I know there's a lot of political controversy, and frankly, one of the gripes that I have of, of a lot of the commentary out there is that so much of it becomes purely political. And I can understand why. I, I completely understand why people go there. This is the low-hanging fruit. There's always controversy in politics, right? And if there isn't any, it gins some up because it has to, to generate a certain amount of melodrama and sensationalism simply to draw people's attentions and, it, and to engage their passions, their fear, their hatred, their, their sense of belonging. It seems a bit manipulative, manipulative to me, but I'm you know, trying to find other aspects of life that also are worth focusing some attention on. And that's, that's where we are today. Now, <laughs> with that, uh, that bold stand against everything political, I'm sure there's going to be something political about this. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about media gaslighting and manipulation of public opinion over COVID-19. And to borrow a phrase from the late, great Will Grigg, I believe we have uh, reached the point where this, this manipulation has attained meteorological significance. No, all that hot air isn't contributing to global climate change, but it is creating a climate of fear and an atmosphere of distrust. John Malt Miltimore, rather, who uh, writes for the Foundation for Economic Education, has a marvelous piece about a, a study. This is an Ivy League study showing how the U.S. media created a climate of fear over COVID-19. I want to share some of the excerpts of this with you because... It's hard to recognize when we are being manipulated. And what's worse is when you do recognize that you've been manipulated, usually the first thing you feel is, is shame. 
as in, I don't want anybody to know that I was duped because then we feel like, oh, well, I was stupid. And how could I have been so dumb? You know, it's, it, it attacks our self-esteem. So you're, you're on the horns of a dilemma. Someone is working hard to manipulate or deceive you. And when you finally break through and realize, oh, my gosh, they've been pulling my strings this whole time, then you feel like a fool. So you could probably understand why a lot of people aren't uh, eager to admit, yep, I was duped. Well, admitting the problem, that's the first step, right? John Miltimore says, on February 18th, the Oxford Mail published an article headlined, Scientists Working on a Coronavirus Vaccine in Oxford. Now, the article explained that Sarah Gilbert, a British vaccinologist and professor at the University of Oxford, was leading a team of scientists at Oxford's Jenner Institute in rapid development of a vaccine. The article was short, less than 200 words, featured a quote from Gilbert, and was reported without any predictions on possible death tolls. Now, for months, Gilbert's research was not covered in the U.S., and when the U.S. media did cover it months later, the successful tracks record, track record rather of the Oxford researchers was downplayed, as was the possibility of getting a vaccine developed quickly. The earliest available major outlet U.S. story is from CNN on April 23rd, and it starts with a quote from England's chief medical officer, Chris Whitty, saying that the probability of having a vaccine or treatment any time in the next calendar year is incredibly small. That's according to the authors of a new National Bureau of Economic Research paper. Now, the authors of the NBER paper titled, Why is all COVID-19 news bad news? Use media coverage of Gilbert's vaccine research as a case study to highlight a larger trend, which is the unique way U.S. media covered the coronavirus pandemic. Now, the authors of the paper, Bruce Sasserdote, Ranjan Sighal, and Molly Cook, who hail from Dartmouth College and Brown University, analyzed the tone of COVID-19-related news articles written since January 1st, and they found a striking difference in the way the U.S. media covered the pandemic compared to media in other countries. Here's what the authors concluded. Quote, 91% of stories by U.S. major media outlets are negative in tone, versus 54% for non-U.S. major sources and 65% for scientific journals. End quote. Holy cow. I mean, you probably suspected this. Look, um, okay, I, I, don't, I don't want to pick on anybody in particular, but there is a major news outlet in my home state of Utah. I mean, a heritage news outlet. The authoritative voice of, of whatever is happening in Utah. And I, I've never seen a, a, a once respected platform give itself more fully to the pimping of fear over COVID than this platform has done. And, and the, the only place I even follow them anymore is on, on Twitter. But I kid you not, every story, well, I should say virtually every story that pops up on Twitter is somehow, number one, COVID-related Number two, filled with fear. It's, the, the spin is unbelievable. And, and it's to the point where I'm actually, I'm no longer feeling contempt for I just feel almost pity. Really? What, what is the benefit 
Other than, you know, fear gets people engaged. Oh, what's the latest, you know, thing? I better click on this and get my daily fear supplement. Let me chug it down. Oh, that tastes bad, but I need it. I need it. I really think we're addicted. John Miltimore says, look, to be sure, pandemics are hardly a cheerful topic. This isn't talking about a firefighter rescuing a kitten from a tree or a local man winning the lottery. But he says that still wouldn't explain the discrepancy in media coverage or the fact that positive developments do occur in pandemics. And he says this invites an important question. How did U.S. media respond to positive developments? Well, here's what the authors of this study found. They found, quote, the negativity of the U.S. major media is notable even in areas with positive scientific developments, including school reopenings and vaccine trials. They said stories of increasing COVID-19 cases outnumber stories of decreasing cases by a factor of 5.5, even during periods when new cases are declining. By the way, John Miltimore has the charts, the visuals, if you will, to back this up. He says the trend toward pessimistic news coverage was so acute, James Freeman noted in the Wall Street Journal that the media mostly missed the amazing vaccine development story that took place right under their nose. And he says, as the NBER report states, U.S. media stories discussing President Donald Trump and hydroxychloroquine alone outnumber all the stories on vaccine research and development that media produced during the pandemic. Now, he reminds us in the classic book, Dune, Frank Herbert wrote about the power of fear. You remember this quote? Fear is the mind killer, wrote Herbert. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. Well, for many people, 2020 has been the most fearful year of their lives. The coronavirus pandemic has brought uncertainty, change, and deadly risk. Now, John Miltimore says a certain amount of fear during a pandemic is warranted, of course, but there are rational ways to respond to threats and irrational ways. And in his opinion, that's a line America crossed in 2020. Now, I got to pause here because we're coming up on our break, but I want to pose this question to you. Am I being too hard? Is this, is this too much of a personal vendetta? Brian, you just have a bone to pick with the uh, heritage media. Well, I do have a bone to pick with them, so I'm not going to deny it. But I do think some accountability might be in order. And I'm not saying, yeah, we should you know, tar and feather them and that would make everything right. But I would love to hear a mea culpa from those who still have a conscience within that media. Is there anybody who does? I guess we'll see. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Welcome to the show. By the way, I'm going to strongly recommend, as I do every single episode, please visit my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. Look at the daily show notes. If you find that the articles that I'm including are interesting, I would encourage you to check out the Resources for Wrong Thinkers page because that is where I share my best or at least my, my favorite news sources that I turn to. And it's not to say because everything they say is absolutely true and just happens to coincide with what I agree with. No, it's, it's because I have been able to stumble across a number of different news aggregators. And by the way, that list is growing day to day. 
that have helped me attain a better understanding of the world around me. And sometimes that's through pushing me up against the limits of uh, my understanding, which is uncomfortable. Even for me, it's it's hard to realize, well, that's all I know on that subject, and you know, I, I, I've got to go out and seek more information. But there are some great resources. And again, you'll find them at thebrianhydeshow.com, including today's show notes, including this marvelous article from John Miltimore from the Foundation for Economic Education about an Ivy League study that shows how the U.S. media created a climate of fear over COVID-19. And specifically, he's pointing out here that even when something good happened, the media was really reticent to, to report it. They, they, well, the bad news is really what people need to hear. In fact, he says new research developed by scientists working with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention suggests the virus appeared to have arrived in the U.S. in December 2019. This would mean the coronavirus was in the U.S. for months and Americans didn't even know it. But once the media caught wind of the disease and fanned the flames of public panic, well, the fear took on a life of its own. Americans and worse lawmakers began to respond to the virus in irrational ways. Basic virology went out the window as 15 days to flatten the curve devolved into the mad idea that we must close down society and shelter from the virus, unleashing unprecedented restrictions on economic freedom and destroying untold numbers of lives and livelihoods in the process. He says this is the power of fear. It caused many rational people, such as Rich Lowry of National Review, who in April called opponents of lockdowns absurd, to suddenly view the sacrifice of timeless civil liberties as entirely reasonable because they believed it would save lives. Now, John Miltimore says today, of course, we know the lockdowns were worse than useless. While they did little to nothing to slow the spread of the virus, their collateral damage speaks for itself. A global collapse in economic output, a projected 150 million people falling into extreme poverty, a historic surge in depression and social isolation that will have consequences that reverberate for decades. Millions of children thrust into learning environments that appear to be even worse than their previous situations, despite the fact that health officials have for months said closing schools is not an effective way to curb the spread of the virus. Now again, he says this is the power of fear, and it caused Lowry and lockdown proponents to forget an age-old truism from Benjamin Franklin. Those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety, Franklin once observed. And sadly, John Miltimore says that is usually what they get. By the way, he's got some excellent articles linked to this article, which again, you can find in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. And this brings me to the subject of resistance. Oh, we know a lot about this, right? Over the last four years, we've heard a lot about, about resistance. And it was mostly, you know, left-wing resistance to President Trump, the man who never should have been elected, never could have been elected, and probably wasn't elected without Russian help in the first place. Yeah, right. Okay, many of the actions backing their said resistance came in the form of lying, looting, attacking, and burning. Now, if that's what constitutes resistance, I don't know, man. You know, I mean, they, they have convinced themselves they are up against literally Hitler. But I think they left, uh, I think the rationality left their minds quite some time ago. 
Now, Jeff Minnick, writing for intellectualtakeout.org, notes that we may be approaching a period in which authentic resistance may be necessary to preserve what remains of our freedoms. Do you see the difference? Not just tear down, not just depose this person or that person, but actually preserve what is good, what is noble, what is worthwhile, what's beautiful. And so he describes what principled resistance is and why it matters. This is an article titled, The New Resistance is Rising. And Jeff Minnick starts by reminding us of the 1976 film Network. A newscaster, driven to the brink of insanity by his rage, exhorts his viewers to open the windows of their apartments and homes and shout, I'm mad as hell, and I'm not going to take it anymore. And within minutes, thousands of people are roaring these words into the night. Well, Jeff Minnick says, in the wake of a decades-long culture war, four years of bile and lies from the left and the mainstream media, nine months of coronavirus lockdowns, and now an election possibly rife with fraud, more and more Americans are opening their eyes to the debased state of their political system and the abusive machinations of their government. He says more and more of them are spitting mad and are not going to take it anymore. The COVID-19 lockdowns are seeing greater pushback from angry citizens who fear the loss of their jobs and their way of life. In civil disobedience over lockdowns spreads across America, Foundation for Economic Education's John Miltimore cites several examples of these protests in the streets by private citizens and even by sheriffs and county officials who refuse to carry out the extreme orders of their governors, particularly the dictates and regulations issued just before the holiday season. In the article, Cops Refuse to Be the Thanksgiving Police, Daniel Greenfield reports in even greater detail the refusal of many police departments to investigate citizens in their homes for possibly violating such orders. From coast to coast, the police are bravely and righteously ignoring dictates, demanding they knock on doors and disperse family and friends eating supper together. Now, in Warren County, Georgia, for example, I'm sorry, Warren County, Virginia, for example, the Sheriff's Department issued a statement just before Thanksgiving instructing residents not to call 911 or the Sheriff's Department to report those neighbors hosting large numbers of visitors. Instead, the department politely asked those with such concerns to contact public health officials as such matters fell under their jurisdiction. In other words, the Sheriff was saying they were not going to be knocking at the doors of those enjoying their Thanksgiving meal. Here's another example. He says, uh, my daughter, Jeff Minnick's daughter, shared a post from the Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania State Representative David Rowe, who was seated in a bar holding a drink with one hand and a phone showing the time, 5.01 p.m. in the other, with the post's message reading, Happy Thanksgiving, Governor Wolf. This is because uh, Governor Wolf had ordered all bars and stores to quit selling alcoholic beverages at 5 p.m. on Thanksgiving Eve. Now, Minnick says many uh, Americans are also incensed over the 2020 presidential election results. President Trump's lawyers are attempting to find evidence of possible frauds, mail-in ballots, tens of thousands of dead voters who miraculously cast votes, massive computer irregularities and malfeasance, and if nothing else, reveal the sorry that if nothing else, reveal the sorry state of our election system. Thousands of Americans have come forward to swear under oath they observed such irregularities, again, a sign of protest. And social media provides even more evidence of American fury with the system. 
with social media giants like Facebook and Twitter censoring different outlets, including intellectual takeout, droves of people are abandoning those platforms for less suppressive outfits like, like Parler, Rumble, or MeWe. And meanwhile, he says, millions of Americans are expressing their anger with the system in more personal ways. Many families, for example, abandon the public schooling system, switching to private schools or taking matters into their own hands and teaching their kids at home. We're going to come back to his article in a few moments because he delves into what it is that makes principled resistance what it should be. Not just mindless chanting, burning, threatening. You get the idea. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Okay, welcome back to the show. We are talking about a, an article from Jeff Minnick. This is New Resistance is Rising. And I know I'm a, I'm a little bit fatigued on the whole resistance thing just because, um, you know, I'm, I, when I hear resistance, I think about the person sitting there as Trump was inaugurated four years ago, screaming at the sky. In fact, I believe their official Rogan or slogan rather of, uh, you know, what do you stand for? That's that's it. It's just, you know, screeching at the sky. But I believe there there are times where we have to resist the attempts of people to assert you know, unlawful or illegitimate authority over us. And, of course, they're going to portray it as, why, why, you rebellious children, how dare you do this? But people who are determined to be free, you've got to be willing to stand up for your rights. You've got to claim them, use them, defend them. Jeff Minnick says, you know, there are many examples of how this is taking place. People, you know, flocking away from social media programs. Fox News has lost a ton of viewers. They're leaving traditional media. He points out how people are abandoning the system. In some cases, the public school system by taking their kids to private schools or teaching their kids at home. He says others are supporting one another through social media and informal networking. For example, he says, my friend John was at the laundromat this week where he has befriended one of his one of the employees. And when the man asked how he was doing, John gave a disheartened answer, referencing the state of the country at which point his friend gave him such an impassioned speech, it's not time to quit. It's time to get fired up that John actually left the laundromat with his spirits renewed. Jeff Minnick says, For four years we have heard about the resistance, a conglomeration of radicals, leftists, officials in various government bureaucracies, wealthy donors, and others, all of them determined to damage Donald Trump's presidency or remove him from office altogether. He says, Now is the time for a new resistance. And into this merry band, we should welcome everyone. Democrats, Republicans, conservatives, liberals, libertarians, men and women, straight and gay, black, brown, and white, who cherishes liberty and despises tyranny. He says, we can make our voices heard in myriad ways. We can protest every time a servant of the people, in quotation marks, puts on a tin pot hat and starts issuing edicts as if he were an emperor. And we can stick together and stand fast in the face of oppression. Now listen to this next part, because this is important. 
Jeff Minnick says, whether Trump is reelected is immaterial to this cause. Indeed, indeed, he says, given his penchant for spending us ever deeper into debt, we should be holding Trump's feet to the fire as well. We must rise above politics and start advocating for what's best for the country and for individual freedom. That line is so good that I'm going to share it with you one more time. We must rise above politics and start advocating for what's best for the country and for individual freedom. Jeff Minnick says it's the American way, and we need to get back on this path as soon as possible. Completely agree. I completely agree. But it's got to be principled. If it's not principled, then it's probably not worth doing. All right, shifting gears. Got a little bit of sad news. I know that 2020 has not been an especially kind year, so please brace yourself. Um, Dr. Walter Williams passed away yesterday. And if you ever listened to the Rush Limbaugh show, Dr. Williams was, uh, was an often uh, a fill-in host for Rush when Rush would be on vacation. I started reading this guy's writings more than 20 years ago. I would see him regularly come up on lewrockwell.com and always found his, his uh, as, as an economist... And as a professor, uh, he was brilliant, but he had a way of explaining things in terms that even I could understand. So you'll, you'll, you'll see why this is why I have such a special place in my heart for people who can do that. Man, if you can make it so even Brian can understand it, you have, you have got a gift. Because I'm not exactly the sharpest knife in the drawer. But it, this is a very nice uh, tribute to him from Thomas Sowell. I saw this on Intellectual Takeout. Walter Williams loved teaching. And Thomas Sowell says, unlike too many other teachers today, he made it a point never to impose his opinions on his students. Those who read his syndicated newspaper columns know that he expressed his opinions boldly and unequivocally there, but not in the classroom. Walter once said that he hoped that on the day he died, he would have taught a class that day, and that's just the way it was when he died on Wednesday, December 2nd. Thomas Sowell says, Walter Williams was his best friend for half a century. He says, there was no one I trusted more or whose integrity I respected more. Since he was younger than me, I chose him to be my literary executor, to take control of my books after I was gone. Just as an aside, I didn't realize Thomas Sowell was that old because Walter Williams was 84. Holy cow. But he says, his death is a reminder that no one really has anything to say about such things. Sowell says, Walter Williams, as an economist, never got the credit he deserved. His book, Race and Economics, is a must-read introduction to the subject. Amazon has it ranked fifth in sales among civil rights books nine years after it was published. Another book of his on the effects of economics under the white supremacist apartheid regime in South Africa was titled South Africa's War Against Capitalism. He went to South Africa to study the situation directly. Many of the things he brought out have implications for racial discrimination in other places around the world. Thomas Sowell says, I have had many occasions to cite Walter Williams' research in my own books. Most of what others say about higher prices in low-income neighborhoods today has not yet caught up with what Walter said in his doctoral dissertation years ago, decades ago. Despite his opposition to the welfare state as something doing more harm than good, Walter was privately very generous both with his money and his time in helping others. He figured he had a right to do whatever he wanted with his own money, 
but that politicians had no right to take his money to give away in order to get votes. In a letter dated March 3rd, 1975, Walter said, Sometimes it is a very lonely struggle trying to help our people, particularly the ones who do not realize that help is needed. End quote. In the same letter, he mentioned a certain hospital, which is an all-but-written policy of prohibiting the flunking of black medical students. Not long after this, a professor at a prestigious medical school revealed that black students that were there were given passing grades without having met the standards applied to other students. And he warned that trusting patients would pay some with their lives for such irresponsible double standards. And Thomas Sowell says that, in fact, happened. He says, as a person, Walter Williams was unique. I have heard of no one else being described as being like Walter Williams. Holding a black belt in karate, Walter was a tough customer. One night, three men jumped him. Two of those men ended up in a hospital. The other side of Walter came out in relation to his wife, Connie. She helped put him through graduate school, and even after he received his Ph.D., she never had to work again, not even to fix his breakfast. Walter liked to go to his job at 4.30 a.m. He was the only person who had no problem finding a parking space on the street in downtown Washington. Around 9 o'clock or so, Connie, now awake, would phone Walter, and they would greet each other tenderly for the day. And Thomas Sowell says we may not see his like again, and that is our loss. Well, I think it's fitting to, uh, I think it's fitting to pay tribute to uh, Dr. Walter Williams. If you go to lourockwell.com, which, by the way, this is one of the resources for wrong thinkers, which you will find at my website, thebrianhydeshow.com, you will find that there is an archive there with decades of columns from Dr. Walter Williams. If you're not familiar with him, can I just offer this, this mild recommendation? Go ahead and click on it. Check it out. Become better acquainted with him. You will be glad that you did, and you'll, you'll probably find that uh, your understanding of economics will, will grow quickly from that moment on. It's not the boring, you know, numbers, blah, 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 you know, basically nerds in lab coats with calculators and glasses on the end of their nose situation that some would make you think it is. Economics is the study of why humans do what they do, how we interact with each other, why we make the choices that we do. And it's not really a science, otherwise you would see people in lab coats trying to do it, but... It's a very interesting study in human nature. It's an interesting study in why the free market works, why self-interest actually produces better outcomes than any form of central planning ever could. And what it all boils down to is, you know, that's really the dynamic that, that uh, drives some of the biggest conflicts that we see in our society today. It's not the Democrats versus the Republicans. It's not the red versus the blue. It always seems to come down to the individual versus the collective. And the collective has been working over many, many decades and perhaps even centuries to try to gain that upper hand. But it is the individual and his or her natural rights that really matter. And this is something good economists understand. Well, Dr. Walter Williams was one of those great economists, so do yourself a favor and check out some of his work. We'll be back in just a moment.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Just like that, we are back. Thank you for being a wrong thinker. Thank you for enjoying the show today. And can I just say this in advance? Thank you for sharing this message with other people, whether it's through sharing this podcast. You know, there are links that make it very easy to do so. Thank you for those who take the time to visit my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com and leave a comment. And, you know, I mean, on the one hand, it could be, hey, let me know how I'm doing. I'm not seeking compliments. I mean, you can leave one if you want, but I do appreciate any input you give me as to what is useful information for you, uh, what doesn't work. My goal here is not to, to build a monument to myself. My goal here is to serve my listening audience in the best way that I can. In fact, I, I, I believe that I have a stewardship here. If I could be so bold, I believe one day I will stand before God and account for how did you use the time and the talents that I allowed you to develop or helped you develop? How did you use these resources to do something worthwhile? And I want to stand there with a clear conscience and say, to the best of my ability, I spoke truth and brought light to people who were looking for those things. And with that in mind, that's, uh, that's why I do what I do. I work weird hours. I, work, I, 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 I never saw my life playing out the way that it has played out so far. But at the same time, I couldn't be happier. And I think a big part of that happiness comes from... Uh, I, I feel like I am in alignment with whatever purpose my creator had in mind when he created me. It's, it's quite a marvelous feeling. It's something I strongly recommend that everybody seek out on an individual basis. All right, back to the content here. Let's talk about the term the Great Reset. I know you've heard it. I've heard it too. And it's likely been cause for concern. Because this isn't just, you know, happening, you know, here in America. This is, we're talking about a global Great Reset. Alberto Mingardi has an excellent essay, saw this on the American Institute for Economic Research website, that warns that this is a time where we really have to be careful. We need to have a clear understanding of the difference between conspiracy and wishful thinking. So here's what he has to say. He says, I've promised to write a post on Klaus Schwab's Great Reset. But he says, the truth is I'm a little uneasy writing about it now. The term has elicited the attention of people willing to see cabals and plots everywhere, as Oliver Cam aptly writes about here. By the way, some great links within this article. Cam is certainly right. The global economy is too complex a matter to be managed by whatever malign elite. And yet, he says, a well-meaning and good-hearted elite sometimes may speak in ways that suggest they would love to be able to manage the global economy themselves. Consider this article from, by uh, Professor Schwab for Time magazine. Here's a passage that sounds exactly like Rahm Emanuel's We Should Not Allow a Good Crisis to Go to Waste. Quote, Since these, those early moments of the crisis, it has been hard to be optimistic about the prospect of a brighter global future. The only immediate upside, perhaps, was the drop in greenhouse gas emissions, which brought slight, temporary relief to the planet's atmosphere. It shouldn't have come as a surprise that many started to wonder, will governments, businesses, and other influential stakeholders truly change their ways for the better after this, or will they go back to business as usual? Looking at the news headlines about layoffs, bankruptcies, and the many mistakes made in the emergency response to this crisis, 
anyone may have been inclined to give a pessimistic answer. Indeed, the bad news related to COVID-19 came out on top of the enormous economic, environmental, social, and political challenges we were already facing before the pandemic. And with every passing year, these issues, as many people have experienced directly, seem to get worse, not better. He says it's also true that there are no easy ways out of this vicious cycle, even though the mechanisms to do so lie at our fingertips. Every day we invent new technologies that could make our lives and the planet's health better. Free markets and trade and competition create so much wealth that in theory, they could make everyone better off if there was the will to do so. But that's not the reality that we live in today. End quote. Now, the author here, Alberto uh, Mingardi, says Schwab's, Schwab is a particularly uh, capable intellectual entrepreneur. He's the one who put Davos on all the world grandees' maps. He provided corporate CEOs and politicians with an important forum to meet at and had great success in developing a staggering network and exporting his own model. Alberto says, I should confess I'm not familiar with his first book, published in 1971, but Wikipedia, not always the best of sources, describes it as foreshadowing the now popular idea of stakeholder capitalism. And he says, I think that's the key point of Schwab's great reset. Schwab is the siren of a world where, rather than chasing short-term profits or narrow self-interest, companies would pursue the well-being of all people and the entire planet. Companies must be freed from economic calculation. This means their performance ought then to be measured not only on profits, but on non-financial metrics and disclosures that will be added on a voluntary basis to companies' annual reporting in the next two to three years, making it possible to measure their progress over time. Now, Alberto says, for Schwab, the rethinking of the capitalist system is not necessarily more urgent because of the pandemic crisis, but it becomes much easier, more within our reach, because of the growing role that governments have taken on in recent months. So, let's not waste a good crisis. Now, while seeing this as a conspiracy because it comes from Davos is ridiculous. He says, I I would appreciate if people could read Schwab with a bit of realism. Profit isn't just a motive, it's also a yardstick. It's a yardstick against which shareholders can measure directors' actions. The latter know the company much better than the former. Having to make a profit, having a clear objective, makes it easier for the owners of companies to evaluate their performance. We know this is never easy. Scandals and frauds remind us of it. But what would happen if the directors could really say they're operating not to make a profit for the benefit of their shareholders, but some some higher ideal? Now, he says, I would be content at this point in being clearer in the public debate. If you prioritize other objects than profit, you're actually giving more latitude to managers. This shouldn't ignite crazy conspiracy theories, but help us having in having a more vigilant public opinion. Alberto Mingardi says, It's quite bizarre that we tend to divide the world between awful private interests and those who use glowing words. But he says perhaps glowing words can be aligned with some private interests too. There's more to this article, so I would encourage you to check it out for yourself. You'll find it at thebrianhydeshow.com. And again, this is not to persuade you that there aren't people who haven't been working for a particular globalist goal over the centuries and the decades. There have. But nonetheless, it's a nice injection of common sense 
and, and a little less tinfoil, I think it was worthwhile. All right, one final thought here, and again, I'm not going to have time to share the whole thing with you, but do you want to understand how science has become intertwined with authority in order to further various political agendas? Thomas Luongo has a marvelous, clear, concise explanation of politics, positivism, and the science of tyranny. And this is something that we have all learned a lot about this year, even if it's in the abstract. And I've included this as part of the show notes so that you can check this out for yourself. This was published earlier today on lewrockwell.com. Luongo says there's nothing worse than the politicization of science. If there's one thing 2020 has taught us, it's that we live within this basic political framework. Science is nothing today if not political. But he says it's even beyond that. This is a framework of experts in all major intellectual arenas, whether it's economics, whether it's psychology, diet, or health. They've all been tied in some basic way to public safety and the role of government in administering that goal, supposedly for the better of us. He says the use of science and the scientific method is perfectly applicable when illuminating underlying physical laws of the universe, but it's a means to an end, not an end unto itself. And politics is nothing if not obsessed with ends rather than means. But he says the problem is that positivism, of which the scientific method is the implementation of said philosophy, ultimately has real or has limited application rather in the real world. And that's because it rejects the illumination of truth through the use of intellect, intellect and logic, relying solely on experience. For those who aren't familiar with positivism, um, This is what we might best describe as the creation of negative rights, obligations, things government will force you to do because it's in the public good or because someone thinks it's a good idea. In this article, uh, we learn about, uh, he goes from theory to theorem, how to manufacture consent, black communist swans, but science says, and uh, also the reality bomb, Thomas Luongo has done a marvelous job of pointing out what happens when you put science and authority together, mix in a little positivism with obligations newly created that government now holds you accountable to do, and how freedom magically vanishes. It's worth your time. I hope you'll take a look at it. This is The Brian Hyde Show.